0: Hi everyone, back at you with another episode of ESEC Lending Insights, where we keep it unscripted, real, and interesting.
1: Unscripted, Peter, I would say that's definitely true, but interesting. Why don't we let our listeners decide on that one? What we are here to do, folks, is share with you our thoughts and perspectives on the securities lending industry, whether that be about demand trends or just what's going on in the industry. And now over to our episode. Let's go. Welcome back, listeners. This is another episode of ESEC Lending Insights Podcast, and I'm Brooke Gilman. I'm in the host chair today. I don't have my normal sidekicks, Jim Maroney or Peter Basler with me. And instead, for the first time ever on the ESEC Lending Insights Podcast, we are debuting Mr. Chris James. Chris, welcome. Thank you, Brooke. So Chris, for those that aren't as familiar with him as I am, he has been with ESEC Lending. He's one of the original co-founders of our business back 23 years ago now and counting. And today is president of our business, heading up our client and sales side of the organization, very much focused on our beneficial owner community alongside myself and some others in the company. So Chris, good to have you on the podcast. The reason that this is Chris's first debut on the podcast is we have a special guest today with us. And it is also a very special topic that interests Chris very much, which is the SEC US Treasury clearing proposal. And with us today, an expert on the topic is Laura Klimpel from DTCC. Laura, welcome.
2: Thank you for having me, Brooke.
1: Definitely glad to have you on. So Laura's role at the DTCC is multifaceted. She wears many hats and has quite a big remit. She's both the general manager for FICC, F-I-C-C, as well as the business development head for their clearing agency business. So Laura, how are you managing all of that? And how's the beginning of June going for you? We're halfway through the year almost here, and I imagine it's a pretty busy year for you.
2: Absolutely. Yes. So clearing is always these days pretty exciting, to be honest with you. There's been a lot of evolutions. We've introduced a lot of new products into the market, both in the fixed income and the equity businesses over the past five or six years. So we're always keeping busy, but certainly the topic that we're talking about in this podcast, the SEC's treasury clearing proposal has kept us very busy since it was proposed back in September of last year.
1: Good. So I want to dive right into why we're doing this podcast now and why it's important that people tune in and pay attention. I think let's then get into explaining, if they don't know what is what, we'll explain that next. But I think let's just really get people focused in on why we're spending time on this at the moment. And so you just mentioned that the SEC just made this proposal last September for U.S. Treasury clearing. Mm -hmm. We are not quite even a year into that. Typically, these things have a long life cycle in terms of getting the final ruling out and implementation cycle. What do you know? What does the market understand to be the position that we're in today here in June of 2023?
2: Right. So the proposal came out in September of last year. As I said, the comment period on the proposal ended at the end of December. And what we have observed from this SEC is that they generally are issuing final rules about a year after the proposal. And so I was just informed yesterday that the SEC has published their calendar for the second half of 23, and Treasury Clearing is showing up as a deliverable in October. And that fits with what I have been hearing through panels and other conferences and forums that I participate in as the head of FIC. I am expecting to see a final rule sometime in the fourth quarter, and this calendar that's just been published aligns with what we're expecting to see. What we think we will see is a final rule which will clarify a variety of things, but inclusive of what is scoped in, what activities are going to be subject to a mandatory clearing requirement and what will not. What we may also see is an implementation period. The SEC interestingly, did not come out with a proposed implementation period or timeline in their proposal, which is interesting. Normally, a proposal will come with the recommendation for implementation. This one did not. So it is anyone's guess, I think, at this point, whether we will see a date certain, whether we will see a proposed phasing, or what we had suggested, Fick had suggested in our comment letter, is that. The SEC let us run the comment period on implementation. Once they have set the rules, the parameters around what will be included in the clearing requirement, letting us conduct a separate comment process specifically on implementation once everybody is clear-eyed about what needs to come in.
1: Okay. So there should be more clarity potentially as early as the end of Q3, beginning of Q4 this year. Yes. Your message to people, it feels like, is... Get ready though now, don't wait, because this might not have a really long tail or longer life cycle after the final ruling and people might need to act quickly in terms of an implementation time period potentially.
2: Yeah. Let me just underscore that, right? We have seen some efforts like tri-party reform, Dodd-Frank, right? We have seen some efforts to make certain changes to the market, clearing or otherwise take several years. I would not bank on that at this point. right? We do not know how fast or slow the SEC is going to want to see at least parts of the market into clearing if they're not here already. So my advice would be if you do activity, and we'll talk about it, I'm sure later in the podcast, that is potentially covered by this proposal, you would be well advised to be thinking now about how you would bring that activity in. Which of our access models you might want to use? Do you want to go through an intermediary? Do you want to come direct? If you want to come through an intermediary, which of the intermediate models would you like? And to start having those commercial conversations with your counterparts now.
0: Okay. And understanding final rules are not out yet, Laura, what's the expectation in terms of what transactions are in scope and what transactions get pulled into this? Because I think that's an important thing for beneficial owners to understand, are there things I'm doing today that are in scope or not based yes. on what we know today?
2: Yeah. So the way that the proposal is structured is interesting for a clearing requirement in the sense that it is keyed off of activity that is done with a direct direct member of the government securities division of FICC. So a a dealer or bank that is a direct member of the government securities division of FICC, which is pretty much all of the major names, any transaction that is done with them, if it is in scope, will be required to clear. So I'm going to take it in parts and I'm going to drill in on, I think, subtleties that the beneficial owner community needs to pay particular attention to. So first, repo. So any repo that is done where your beneficial owner is either the sole counterparty to a netting member or potentially a basket of counterparties in a cash reinvestment repo, for example, that is subject to the clearing requirement unless the beneficial owner is one of the carved out exceptions, meaning they're either a retail customer, they're a multilateral organization, or they're a government instrumentality. Those are the carve outs from the proposal Everyone else is in scope. So I would suggest that folks take a hard look at those exceptions. If they don't fit into one and they do any sort of treasury repo or their agent does treasury repo on their behalf as part of a portfolio of reinvestments off of a stock loan, they are covered by the proposal as written. Now, there were certain comments from, I believe, RMA, possibly another trade organization, which suggested that cash reinvestments, triparty be carved out. I don't know whether or not that will be done, but right now folks are in. Anybody that does any sort of treasury repo as an investment strategy, of course, unless they're one of the carved out constituents is covered to the extent they're doing that activity with a FIC netting member as the principal counterparty. Before I move on to cash, I want to talk about SEC lending for a second because on its face, The proposal does not propose to include treasury lending, meaning as opposed to lending of equities, the lending of treasuries versus cash. It was, though, a question. So one of the nuances of these types of proposals is that there was a question about whether or not treasury lending ought to be scoped in in order to mitigate risks of evasion. Meaning, if a beneficial owner is engaging in a treasury lending transaction and doing it under an MSLA specifically, or maybe not so specifically, but generally speaking, to avoid the clearing requirement, that was something that was on the mind of the SEC when they were drafting this. So it is possible that treasury lending could either get scoped in completely or there could be something regarding evasion that could potentially push some of the treasury lending into scope as well. So I just want people to pay attention to that because I know you all know this, right? There is a pretty blurry line between GC lending and repo. So I think that's something that folks in their council are going to have to think long and hard about after this and to the extent that this proposal goes final. Then the second pillar of scope is cash activity, right? So cash activity, which when I say that, I mean the purchase or sale of a treasury where one of the transacting parties is a direct member of FICC. So the scope of this requirement is narrower than repo. In repo, it's pretty much everything, right? bilateral, tri-party, repo, all scoped in with only the limited exceptions for the types of entities that I laid out. But for cash, it's a narrower subset. So for cash, the transaction is subject to the clearing requirement if one of the counterparties is a GSD netting member, and then number two, the other counterparty is either a broker-dealer, a GSC, or an account That takes leverage. So the question is, who is that going to cover? And the one aspect of it that I want to make sure that I flag is that although I think probably the main focus of the leveraged accounts is likely prime broker activity, I think that potentially a beneficial owner, if it transacts in treasury activity out of an account that can take a prescribed amount of leverage, it could be scoped in. And I'm actually going to flag the specific language of the proposal. I've done this book a couple of times with your community because I just want to make sure people are paying attention to this because I am not sure until people actually read this, whether or not pensions, for example, might fall into this bucket. So as I said, cash transactions between direct participants and accounts at registered broker dealers, GSEs. Or government securities brokers that may borrow an amount in excess of one half of the net value of the account or may have gross notional exposure of the transactions in the account that is more than twice the net value of the account. And then they say, e.g., prime broker accounts, right? So I think the question is beneficial owners are going to have to think about the way they've described this trigger. It's not tying to a legal entity,
1: is right. it a leveraged entity? To, right, that's it's what I was going to say. It's tying to the
2: account, right, yeah. where the transactions are done. So I think, and again, I'm thinking about pensions that do take on leverage. They have to look at their account setup to see if it falls within this bucket. I don't know enough to be able to say, obviously, the main focus here was hedge fund transactions, family offices, but... This interestingly was a portion of the proposal that got no comments. Nobody focused on it.
0: Right. Based on that language, it sounded as if there was a percent of leverage test of 50 to 100% leverage, unless I misunderstood that. So if a pension or other client was taking 10% leverage or 20% leverage from the sound of that reading, it didn't sound like that would be covered. Right. Did I misunderstand?
2: Yeah. I mean, I'm just reading to you from the proposal, an amount in excess of one half of the net value of the account or may have a gross notional exposure of the transactions in the account that is more than twice the net value of the account. So the question is how much leverage is in these accounts, making sure it doesn't hit this trigger. If it does, then it would have to, according to the proposal, clear. But yeah, I think that's something that folks have to focus on and make sure that they aren't covered
0: under that. They're not pulled in by that clause, yeah. Yeah,
2: Yeah, that they're not carved in. And then the other cash activity, That is covered is any transactions that are done on an interdealer broker, you know, like a broker tech or an ICAP or a dealer web. I don't think your community is in that. I don't think they're trading on the IDBs, at least today, but, you know, in case they are, that is also, if it's a cash transaction in treasuries and it's done on an interdealer broker, then they're carved in as well. That's really focused more, I think, on the principal trading firm community. And they've definitely, because of their relative footprint and the size of the overall cash treasury market has drawn a significant amount of attention recently. I think that's why they're scoped in as well. So that's what's in scope in terms of covered activity.
1: Okay. And so just to kind of recap some of that then, again, if we're thinking about just the beneficial owner buy-side community and let's just for argument's sake use pensions as our example right now. So if it's a pension fund that is doing some US treasury repo either directly themselves or via an agent, whether it's part of a cash reinvestment product or not. And I know that there was some comments around that in some of the feedback, but if they're doing that with one of the government securities clearing members, and there's a list, there's a website that has all of those banks Mm -hmm. included. So I mean, you can Google it, right? But that's a pretty comprehensive list of all bank organizations, I would assume. And
2: dealers. And dealers
1: globally. So if you're doing that with one of those market participants, then the proposal would say that that activity falls under scope and would need to be in the future, whether it's done triparty or bilateral, would need to be done through a centrally cleared model through FIC. And then there's the also sort of important notation, which is if you also are doing it out of an account, potentially that falls under those leverage requirements, that might be a whole nother thing to look into, of course. For so cash activity. For, for cash whether you're, activity. Whether not you're doing treasury repo. Yeah. For purchasing and selling treasuries. Got
2: it. You have Got to look it. at the leverage account con yeah. of the cash requirement to make yeah. sure you don't fall into that. And then yeah. I would say, Brooke,
1: unless
2: as a beneficial owner, you fall in one of the exempted right, constituencies yeah. that doesn't have to participate.
1: Now, if the same beneficial owner that wasn't exempt, so there's someone that otherwise wouldn't qualify under one of those categories, if they are also doing US Treasury repo activity, with an entity in the market that is not on that government securities member firm, long list of banks and dealers, then the proposal would not capture those transactions as it's written today, correct? So correct. if it's sort like of a pension peer, doing U.S. Treasury repo with another pension. Peer-to-peer. Today, yep. Yes. Today that would peer-to-peer, fall out. peer peer I would say
2: does not fall into scope at least not yet.
1: (laughs) Right, right. Right. Understood. Yeah. Yeah. Anything can happen. Now, can you maybe talk a little bit about, and I'm sure that this is a longer conversation, so maybe we can hit the high points, but what brought this about? What is the SEC likely? And I know that you can't speak on their behalf. You know, you can only make some assumptions based upon your knowledge that you have, but what do you think they're ultimately trying to accomplish here? And what are the important takeaways of what matters to them in terms of the end state? Yeah, I
2: mean, certainly it's the SEC that's acting right now. But I would say the official sector in general is very concerned and focused on the resiliency of the treasury market, right? Okay. So the treasury market, as we all know, has grown significantly in size in recent past and will continue to grow over the years to come. I read someplace that people are estimating the treasury market will be $40 trillion. Wow. in 10 years so this becomes this is a growing market and it is an incredibly important market i don't have to tell your community that because of that and because we have seen significant stress events in recent past right we saw the stress of september 2019 where we saw significant supply demand mismatches we saw March 2020 stress at the beginning of COVID that ultimately led us to have to cease to act for one of our members. We've seen stress as recently as March of this year related to the regional bank crisis. And I think generally speaking, the official sector is concerned about, and I think the proposal discusses this, number one, risk management practices in the treasury market are not uniform. There was a lot study That talked about the preponderance of bilateral repo between dealers and hedge funds having no haircuts whatsoever. So, I think concern number one is related to uniformity of risk management practices. And one way, it's not the only way, but one way to ensure that all parties to cover transactions are being risk managed appropriately is by putting it in a CCP. Because, as we all know, CCPs force market participants to internalize the market and liquidity risks that they present through our margin requirements, through our liquidity requirements, which are strictly scrutinized, subject to intensive modeling, backtesting, so on and so forth, to ensure that all those transactions are risk-managed in a uniform way. And it's done so in a way that is subject to a significant amount of rigor, I would argue, far more precise And conservative in most cases than blunt haircuts, and also more dynamic, right? You know, we have sensitivity based bar models where we can add stresses and so on and so forth. So there's a lot of precision around the way that we manage risks. And that is because we need to, as a CCP, we're held to a very high standard of being able to protect the market and the system, even in extreme, but plausible market conditions. So I think that's issue number one that's in focus for the regulators. I would say issue number two is systemic risk, right? So I hear a lot from the long only buy side about, well, you know, I collect haircuts. I'm not one of those hedge funds that's not posting margin, but I think it is not lost on the official sector that holders of haircuts, if they are not in clearing, can create fire sales. Most of them, I know I deal with them all the time, their requirements, sometimes regulatory requirements, will be to blow out collateral. If there is a default of their counterparty, they've got to sell. And what does that do? That's gonna create potentially a downward spiral of pricing and create systemic risk. We saw that happen in 08. I think that is not lost on the regulators. The difference with clearing is that in clearing, the community is effectively outsourcing the liquidation of a common default or to the clearinghouse. When the clearinghouse has all these tools, right, it's got its margin, it's got its liquidity resources, it can see the whole portfolio, it can see the offsets. And we also have a mandate not to move the market in our liquidation. So we have all these tools so that we can liquidate in an orderly fashion in a way that minimizes disruption to the system overall. And I think that's something that resonates with the official sector because that is not something that any bilateral counterparty can solve for on their own, no matter what haircut they charge and no matter how careful they are about their counterparties. If you know the worst happens, they have to be acting alone. And I think that the third aspect of it is about transparency. There are big pockets of the treasury market where it's super hard. To get data on them, particularly in the repo market, unless it is in FIC or in the tri-party market, it is hard to get transparency on those markets. Now, clearing is not the only way that we can improve transparency in the markets. And I think the SEC has other initiatives in train that are going to work on that goal as well. But certainly the activity I see, I can report up. And so that the official sector has much more real-time information on what's happening in the market and can act more quickly than they're able to do maybe today. So I think those are the three pillars of why we're having this conversation and why we're having it now.
1: Okay. And so let's then jump to the reality of, again, go back to our example from earlier, where a U.S. pension... We do U S treasury repo, maybe we do it two ways. Maybe we do it a bit through an agent. Maybe we also do some directly ourselves and let's say we're not exempt and we know we fall under scope cause we're doing it with those types of counterparties, global banks and the dealers that are on that list. What do they now need to be thinking about in terms of how they can go about accessing the clearing model? I know there's sort of the direct ways that they can do that not everyone might be able to go direct. So there's also sort of the ways that you can go through an intermediary. And I know that it also gets detailed and complex quickly, probably. So again, yeah. keeping at high level, can you talk about it in terms of the different categories of accessing the central clearing model?
2: Sure. So first thing I'll say is if you haven't gone there already, please go to ustclearing.com. It's a microsite that we have built, which has a wealth of information on our direct and indirect access models. So there's a ton of information there that you can use to come up to speed on all the different ways that you can come in. So what I would say, the first question, if I'm pretending you're a pension, Brooke, right? Is I would say, okay, and let's assume the leveraged account is out of scope. Let's pretend like you don't have enough leverage in any of your accounts. That's not a problem. Okay. So we're just talking about repo. So I would say first question, Brooke, is do you take leverage through repo? Are you ever a collateral provider or are you just lending cash? That's question number one. And that will tell me, in particular, which of the access models won't work for you. So I have one direct access model, which is called Centrally Cleared Institutional Triparty or CCIT, which is open to. A beneficial owner who is just an investor in Triparty. They're just lending cash, taking treasuries. They can do that trade and become a direct limited purpose member of the clearinghouse. If they're only lending cash through that product, we do not charge them margin. This is important. The reason we can do that is because what we do as an alternative is we take a lien on the collateral that is posted to them in TriParty. We basically lock up the TriParty account so that if the cash lender ever should default, then we can just foreclose on the account. We have no market risk associated with that default. That product I think is kind of a hidden gem to be honest with you in our suite because the sponsored product, which has gotten a lot of fanfare recently and which just hit 750 billion, and we just announced it today, has gotten most of the airtime. And the reason that I think it is more attractive in a lot of ways for a lot of folks is number one, it doesn't require a firm to directly onboard to the clearinghouse, right? So if you directly onboard to the clearinghouse, I would say it is more work in the sense that you're going to have to plumb into us. We have to be able to connect with you. We need sort of technical connectivity, operational connectivity, as well as documentation. We need a legal opinion on the certainty of our lien and triparty, et cetera. So the onboarding process is A larger lift. And so, generally speaking, on balance, people have gravitated towards a sponsored product because they don't have to do that much work with thick. However, I think with the proposal out there, people are like, well, if I've got to bring all my treasury repo in, I don't want to be dealing with 35, 40 counterparties. That's too much work for me. So, my answer to them is okay, fine. If you're just a cash investor, why don't you think about CCIT? You can mitigate the need to sign up every counterparty that you have in repo, you can just face pick, and guess what? You can trade with everyone because you will no longer have credit risk associated with your counterparties. You will be a direct member of the FICC and that's very attractive. So I think now that we're talking about potentially having to bring some or all activity in, it's a different calculus than just why people have generally gravitated towards the sponsored product because it is an easier path. For the buy okay. side. So that's the first question. And then the second question that I would want to know is, are you capable of posting margin? Are you capable of contributing to margin? And when I say capable, I'm not interested in, oh, well, I don't really do that today, or I'd have to change my charter to do that. What the asset test we would be looking at is, is there a regulatory limitation? Right, the RICs are a great example of this in the sense that they really struggle with posting margin because they have certain requirements under the 40 Act, like 5B3, which really creates issues when all of the collateral is not staying with them in their account. If some of it has to be given over to a clearinghouse and be able to be used to cover losses, that creates regulatory friction. So is there a regulatory impediment that blocks you from being able to contribute to margin and, or do you have significant operational challenges with it? If you say yes to that, then I would probably point you to the sponsored service because in that product, we have a capability such that you can transact on a principal basis with your clearing member and you can effectively compensate them via spread for all of the clearing costs they're going to cover for you. And that's the way it works today for a lot of folks is that the sponsor will cover the margin, will cover the mark-to-market, will cover the liquidity costs. And that works, I would say, quite well for beneficial owners who are, let's call them the most constrained. They're not able to do those things. On the other hand, if you are a more nimble beneficial owner, you could do one of two things. Number one, you could speak to your intermediaries about maybe agenting your activity into the clearinghouse. So we have what we call a done away sponsored model where the activity is not done on a principal basis without the spread. It's done on an agented basis such that the beneficial owner is not actually trading with the sponsor they're trading with some third party in clearing, and that trade is being given up to the sponsor just to act as the clearing intermediary. We also have two other models that are very similar agented models. We call them our prime broker and our correspondent clearing models. And again, they're basically the same thing, but they've been used historically by certain prime brokers and correspondent clearers to facilitate their customers' agented activity and clearing. So we have all of those options. Or one other which is you could consider becoming a direct member of the government securities division of FICC. So I have certain examples of very sophisticated asset managers like a Citadel or a DRW who have either used their broker-dealer entity or in some cases are working on setting up, not for those two, but for others, setting up a broker-dealer entity To become a direct member. I know this is a lot of work, but I'd want to give the full range of options. If you want to establish a broker-dealer or other regulated entity that can be a direct member of the government securities division, you would have no constraints. You could do everything, bilateral repo, cash, you could trade on screens, you could do GCF, you name it, the full gamut of activity. And then secondarily, I have what's called a tier two netting membership. Which is basically a legal entity that is operationally capable and economically capable of covering all the BAU requirements of clearing, margin, mark, liquidity, they can plumb into us, they can handle calls all day. You know, I like to remind people, you know, we can call up to the evening if we're having a very volatile market. They have to be able to do that. They have to have the operations in place to do that. But I do have a category. Right now, it's limited to just the RICs and CCIT members, where basically, if you can prove to me that you're regulatorily limited from being able to mutualize loss, I can potentially expand that category to include your entity type. And in that case, you would only have to cover losses that the trades you happen to do with the defaulter covered, not necessarily a mutualized loss. So you would have to cover the losses that your trades cause to the clearinghouse, which should be no different than what you'd face in the bilateral world, but you're not in the mutualized pool. So that is another interesting conversation that I'm having with certain, what I'll call operationally sophisticated asset managers today. But, you know, what I believe, Brooke, is that There's no one size fits all. I don't believe all this activity can or should go through the sponsored product going forward. That just happens to be the one that's been the most popular in recent days, given where we are in the cycle and given where balance sheets are and given the maturation of folks in clearing. But I really do believe these other access models will have their day. And I would love to see people coming through all the different channels.
0: Thinking about the timeline and working, assuming an October final pass, how long does it take typically for firms to get through the application and setup process of those different channels that you're talking about? It depends
2: on which one. Sponsored is the fastest, I would say at our level. Once you get through the negotiation with your sponsor of the commercials, we can generally onboard you once all the documents are in place in about five business days. So that's the fastest one at, like I said, our level. Now I can tell you from experience that there are some commercial negotiations with sponsors that I've seen drag on for months, six months or more. And I've seen some people sign up for it within days. So I think it really depends upon the arrangements and how difficult the negotiations. Usually the issue is at the sponsor to client level. That's where the meet happens. Once you get to our level, there's no negotiation. It's a binary contract. You agree to the terms of the rule book, that's it. And then usually in about five business days, we can have you plugged in. If you're coming into one of the direct models, it's a longer road, Chris, right? Because we're going to be vetting you as a member of the clearinghouse. So there's certain credit reviews, technical setups, testing, that kind of thing that we do. Now, I always tell people we're never the long pole in the tent and we usually aren't. Sometimes it takes clients a while to get organized internally. So they may start the process with us, but they may not be completely ready to go through the process. So sometimes I've seen it take For a direct membership, let's call it three months to upwards of a year. And I think everything depends upon, generally speaking, how motivated the client is to work through the process. And do they have a dedicated project manager? Is this the primary focus of their senior management? And it depends. That can vary. Now, we are sensitive to onboarding needs, and certainly onboarding is something that we are expecting to do a lot of in the next couple of years. So we've been in spurts where we have daily standups and we talk about where all the names are in the process. So we definitely can move names through the process quicker if necessary, as long as they're engaged on their side, Chris, but it will be a longer process if you're trying to come in directly. So if anybody's interested in coming in directly, I strongly recommend that they call me and we get them started so that they have a sense of what they're gonna be required to do.
1: Great. Thank you, Laura. So I think our listeners have some homework to do.
2: I would say number one, read the proposal or at least the summary of the proposal
1: okay. and figure
2: out, are you in or are you out? right? Ready? And then I would say number two would be to visit our ustclearing.com microsite and look at all the different access options. There's a ton of information about FIC on there, our risk management, because Chris, we talk about the onboarding process it's a two-way street there's a lot of information and a lot that we need from the client but certainly there's always a diligence process that comes the other direction as well clients need to get comfortable with us as a counterparty which usually involves understanding our risk management understanding our resources understanding our rules understanding how we're regulated etc and there's a ton of information about that as well on the microsite
1: perfect okay and then lastly call laura She's busy. So do her a favor, do your homework first, read the summary, visit the microsite, then call Laura to minimize your load right now. Is there anything else? I mean, I know there's a lot here and we obviously covered a lot. So thank you. This has been really helpful. But again, with your beneficial owner hat on, is there anything else that you think we've missed or just as a really important takeaway that we haven't already covered in terms of trying to emphasize the importance of paying attention and paying attention now?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think what I would suggest is just make sure that you are thinking about all the different aspects by which you might be engaged in treasury activity, even if it's being done by your agent. And again, beneficial owners are a bit different than the dealers that I deal with. But one of the big things that I emphasize to the dealers first thing is like, look, you got to go look around the shop for all the different areas that deal with treasuries. And then you got to come together and figure out how you want to engage in the new world. Beneficial owners, one, you got to figure out what is scoped in, but I also think there are business decisions to be made about what makes sense for you as a business. If this is a requirement, how best to execute your business objectives while complying with the requirement. And that may mean doing business in a different way. Maybe you use an agent today for part of your business, but maybe you're saying, well, maybe I should do this directly. Or maybe you say, well, I'm doing some of it myself, but I'm not really set up, nor am I interested in being a direct member. Maybe I really need a good clearing partner here. So I think what I would emphasize, Brooke, is that this is much more of a market structure change than a technical change. This isn't just a reporting requirement, which I know we've had some of those in the recent past. This is going to impact you from the front to the back office. Right. It's going to change
1: the way people do business and transact. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So I think the best practice here is to be thinking now about how you want to operate in the new world and are there benefits? Can you get new capacity? For example, some of the beneficial owners, when I talk to them about direct access, they're like, you mean I can transact with anybody in clearing? You mean I can go to the screens? Yeah, I do. And so there may be new costs but there could be new opportunities. So I always like to try to look at the positive, look for the opportunity. I think you'll be ahead of the game if you do that. Even if you have new requirements, there may be blue ocean for you to swim in as well. So that would be my suggestion.
1: Good. All right. Well, we all like blue ocean, so let's make sure it stays that way. Good. Well, Laura, thank you for joining us. Thank you for getting Chris's feet wet in this podcasting world. Chris's wasn't very painful, right? Not you terribly, so... <laughs> <laughs> Next time we'll get you on with Jim you, and Peter Laura. and see how You're you welcome. do there. All right, Laura, well, thank you so much. It sounds like maybe it's worth checking in with you again, perhaps even after the final ruling comes out, maybe we can get back on and we'll have then final information. And so there'll be a little bit more clarity on some of the points we, we covered off and maybe a better understanding truly of what ends up being in scope and importantly, the time frame and how quickly people do need to act. So again, thank you for taking the time today. And we just want to thank our listeners. And if you do have any questions, Laura is available, but please do your homework first. Thanks, Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Chris.
0: Thank you. Take care.
1: Thanks for listening, everybody. Hope we left you
0: with something interesting and productive to utilize in your daily securities lending activities.
1: And friends, don't forget to subscribe to East Tech Lending Insights wherever you get your podcasts. And now for our disclaimer. This material is for your private information and does not constitute legal tax or investment advice. There's no representation or warranty as to the current accuracy of nor liability for decisions based upon such information. Thank you for listening.